This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. 83. Okay, so Parzeg of 5783. Parakut Aleph, Pesach Vav. Here's what the Pesach says, and this I know is out of order. Really, it belongs in Parshas Korach, but this is what the Pesach says over here, so if the Pesach brings it down over here, it must, there must be a reason for it in Parshas Ekev. Pesach says, Yud Aleph Vav, Vashar Osel Adosan of Yerim Ben Eliab and Ruvain, that which God did to Dosan of Yerim, the sons of Eliab, the son of Ruvain, Asher Potzda Arsaspia, where the ground opened up its mouth with Tivla Aim and swallowed them up, Vespotam, and their houses, Vesolam, and their tents, Veskol Yukum Asher Braglam, and all the things, all the Things that were standing by their feet, the care of Koyisrael among all of Bnei Yisrael. Yes, I know this Parshas Korach. I get it. Nonetheless, what happened to Dustin Avirim, and what is this pasuk telling us? Why does it have to repeat what we think we already know? So. Obviously, all of these psukim we're talking about in Parshatekeh, Parshavashan, and etc. are from Moshe Rabbeinu to show the people what they experienced and what Akash Baruch Hu had done for them in the past. Look at what God is willing to do for you, right? Moshe Rabbeinu was telling them, and that's why you should keep the mitzvos. That's what he's telling them, because look at what he's done. Look at all these things. But there's something very strange over here. Does Nile Torah ask, why point this myself from everything else that happened to them in the middle of war? Why Dustin and Aviram and Korach? Right? When the previous puzzles, that was done for you when you came through the midbar up until you got to this place. How is that not included in this? Obviously, Dustin Avirim is included, right? That happened to them while they were in the Midbar. So why point it out, right? Aside from that, why not bring up Korach? You're only bringing up Dustin and Avirim in this Pasuk, or in these Pesukim over here. You're not even mentioning the guy who started in the first place. He's the one that started everything, right? When the Meraglim made their claims against Eretz Yisrael, this is in the Aznayin Latorah, they claimed it was also flowing with milk and honey. Yud Gimel Chavzayin, Yud Dalet Ches, and Rashi says because every lie has to contain some bit of truth. So therefore they said it's also flown with milk and honey, meaning that it was equal to Egypt. And that's what they honestly believed. Kalev yelled back, no, it was Eretz Asher who Zavas Chalavu meaning it's the only land that's flowing with milk and honey. This is nothing like Mitzrayim. Dustin and Aviram took it one step further. And they said in Parsha Shlach, and again, Tazayinud Gimel, that Mitzrayim was flowing with milk and honey, and Eretz Yisrael was not, even though they never saw it. That was that. So again, there was a question of, is it equal? Is it Eretz Yisrael's greater? That's what Kalev said. Or, Dustin Avira believed that that Mitzrayim was even greater than Eretz Yisrael itself, even though they'd never been there. They would have rather go back to Egypt, said Dustin Avira, capture the land from the weakened Egyptians, and live there instead of going to Eretz Yisrael. That's what they asked, that's what they wanted, that's what they suggested to Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe brought up the Egyptians, two psukim earlier, mentioning how their army had been decimated, the people were weakened, this thought entered the minds of many. So why don't we just go back there? Why do we have to fight these wars against 31 kings in Ogin Sichon, right? Rather than fight all the giants, we could just go back to Mitzrayim and take them all over. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu brought up Dustin and Avirim. You're not the first ones to have that claim, said Moshe Rabbeinu. You're not the first ones to think that way, right? Eretz Troll has something that Mitzrayim doesn't have. And this is what Dustin and Avirim didn't get. It's Kedusha. This had nothing to do with Korach. He only argued about the leadership position of Klai and who's going to be the leader of Klai Is it going to be Aaron? Is it going to be Moshe? Is it going to be etc. Who's going to be in charge? Right? He never said anything about Eretzal. He never complained about Eretzal. But Dustin Aviram did. And when Dustin Aviram did, that should tell you how true this parish is, and that's the connection. And if you look at Pasuk Yud, you'll see something amazing over here. Pasuk Yud really follows that all up. Time of the Korah points out, this is Rebbe Chaim Kenevsky, that 
Eliav was not the son of Reuven, because there's a Rebbe Eliav ben Reuven, but he was the grandson of Reuven, the son of Palu. Why is Palu not mentioned over here? So he suggests that Eliav is mentioned because he's the father that raised such evil children. Reuven is mentioned because the Balaturim says that when he told Yaakov, Tamis, my two sons will die if I don't bring back Binyamin, Yaakov didn't accept it, but nonetheless, because he said it, the two sons who were going to die was because, was Dasan and Aviram. Right? Akarish Baruch says the words of a tzaddik don't go for naught. And if Reuven said, Tamis, it's going to happen in Dasan and Aviram. So he was partially responsible for their death. Palu was not responsible. Aliyev raised them. Reuven was responsible because of his words, but Palu was not responsible and therefore he's not mentioned over here. Ibn Ezra says the word Batehem in this Pasuk, mm-hmm. that they were swallowed up at Vitiblaim. They were swallowed up together with Batehem, etc. Now that's going to be and that's going to be the idea of of uh, of their wives and children. Says the Ibn Ezra, their wives and children. Of Zion Torah says, the word bias cannot mean literally their houses. Since they didn't have houses in the desert, they only had ohalim, tents. The problem with this is that in Parshish Korach, the Pasuk says, Vativ losam, ves bateim, ves koa adam asher lekorach. So it says their houses, and then it says the people. So it does sound like their houses themselves, right? It can't be the family. It says, that's koa adam. Now, I would have answered that bateim means their family, and koa adam means all the people that were convinced by Dustin Avirim that they were right, and it's not just their family that swallowed up. But I guess that's not shot because it seems like it's only the families of Dustin Aviram. Or you could say, Kola Adamashir Lakorach, while Batehem referred to the families of Dustin Aviram. I'm not positive. Regardless, right, it's possible that Dustin Aviram denied Moshe Rabbeinu's ability to bring them anywhere and began calling their tents houses, as Zalzalzalim Torah puts it, and says, we might as well live here forever because that's what we're going to do because we're not going to go anywhere, right? And that's the idea as if to say we're going to be here for a while. Or they actually built houses in the desert in order to prove their point. Those are the houses that actually sunk into the ground. So they didn't have tents. They had houses, whether it was real houses or houses that they called, uh, tents that they called houses. Either way, that's what got swallowed up by the ground. Now, what is koleyakum? What does the koleyakum mean? Everything that was with them. So Ibn Ezra says koleyakum refers to anything else that was with them. That can include animals. It can include possessions, even slaves. Reverse says it may refer to the other people that were with them, those standing by his side, helping Dustin Aviram and their rebellion and whatever it is. And that's koleyakum, the people standing next to them. Rashi says or koleyakum refers to their money, right? Something that keeps man on his feet, right? Anything owned by these evil people swallowed by the ground along with them. I would think that this is so, so they would not be used by anybody else and their names would be erased completely like a mullet. You won't remember anything from them. So as Koliyakum means anything that was with them at the time. Targion translates it as Tiryasa, which could mean treasure boxes or even cities, which would mean all of the people around them or the treasures anybody had, the special stuff that they had. Menachem Tzilin says there are two parts to a person. Halfway up, he's like a Malak, but halfway down, he's human being. Money causes a person to pull themselves more toward the ground. It's mimed him on the ground. It stands him on the ground itself toward Gashmis, and it to all the terrible things that the world has to offer. The word yakum also means something bad. Vayakum Cain before he killed his brother. Vayakum ish nefesh. A guy gets up against his friend and he kills him. Right? Bas kama be'ima. A daughter will get up against her mother is a pasuk When one allows his money to rule over him and allows himself to be swayed by what his money tells him to do, he lowers himself and stands up against everything that is holy and good. The Kliyaka quotes Rashi and then he wonders, if someone doesn't have any money, does that mean he is lame and he can't walk? Is that literally a koliakum, anything that stands you up? What exactly does Rashi mean by money stands a person up? Will none of his wisdom help him if he doesn't have any money? Any of his other great milas, nothing else will be able to stand him up. He says it's clear, this Pusking is teaching us, that money is one of four milas that a person can have in this world, brought by the Rabbi and Shimon Prakim, and is the lowest of the four. There's Chachma, that has to do with one's brain and one's head, obviously. There's Gvura, that has to do with one's arms and one's heart. Midos, which are within a person, the innards of a person. And finally, wealth, which are the feet and the legs of a person, the close the man is to the ground itself. In theory, 
A man should be able to rule over his tavis and very easily. His head and his heart and all of his body should be able to rule over his feet and his legs. They're on the bottom of his, so it should be obvious since his entire body is above it. However, when money starts to rule over a person, that person will never be able to do anything without knowing how it's going to affect his cash flow. Such a person will not be able to think straight if he doesn't have any money, and therefore, it's called yakum. You could be smart. You could be brilliant. You could be strong. You could have great midos, but none of that will matter to you. Not when you're worried about your bottom line. Just think about what happened to Korah. He wanted one more thing, leadership position, and it didn't matter. He couldn't handle it. That's the idea behind it. Alain Elishabach says in this passage that money can destroy even the most intimate relationships, like a son-in-law and a shver. Son-in-law and a father-in-law. I'm going to give you a story. It's a crazy story. A 45-year-old man came to review to Zilberstein crying that his daughter just gave birth to his first grandson, right? But his son-in-law won't allow him to be at the bris. Why went alone to be at the bris and especially to be Sandik? He said, because he still owed him some money from promises that he made before the wedding. Right? So this father-in-law was not in a good financial state at this point. The wedding had, pour, pour, had pulled him out completely and he didn't give what he promised he was going to give. Right? I guess he took out many loans and he wasn't able to pay all of them back and he couldn't, uh, whatever it is. But either way, he couldn't believe that the father of his grandson was being mocked at Kach that he wouldn't let him go to the bris. Now, I don't know if he wouldn't let him go to the bris or he just wouldn't let him be Sandik. I'm not sure which one it is. Either way, Rabbi Zilberstein called over the young father. Right? He told the Rav he wasn't willing to give up a penny of what his father had promised him from before the wedding. My father-in-law told me that this is what I'm supposed to get, and therefore I am going to take that amount, right? So that's what he told him. Rabbi Yitzhak asked him, Rabbi Zilberstein asked him, even at the expense of your own shalom bias? And the man said, 100%, this is what he owes me. Why should I give this up? So the Rav then told him a really good story. Story within a story is always the best, by the way. Young Rav Chaim Brisk was a goan, and everybody knew he was going to lead Klai Yisrael into the future. When he got married... His father-in-law, right, promised him the world, obviously knowing that this type of a son-in-law was going to do everything for him. So he said, 100%, this, I'm going to give him everything. But he absolutely could not afford it. So he began to borrow more and more money in order to take care of Reb Chaim Brisker's dowry to make sure that he was okay. But he wasn't okay. The father-in-law wasn't okay whatsoever. Reb Chaim Brisker was learning in peace, but he was running around trying to get money to pay back this person and that person, whatever, and he couldn't afford it. Reb Chaim found out about it and realized that the pain that his father-in-law was in, he immediately figured out where the loans came from, what ended up being with the money and how he got that money, etc. He took his dowry out of the bank, every last cent of it, and used it to pay back all the money that his father-in-law owed. When the father-in-law figured out what was happening, he ran to his son-in-law, you know, the future Gadolador, and he said, how are you going to learn in peace now? You don't have anything behind you. You don't have any money that's going to help you out. So Chaim answered, it's true. But if I didn't return that money to pay back all the loans that you took, it would have been worse for me. Said we was back to the this man. He said, apparently a good person cares about his shver. A gadol Yisrael and a future gadol Yisrael cares about what his father-in-law has, even if his father-in-law promised him the world. At least know that if you're not going to agree to that, you're not Reb Chaim, and you'll never be Reb Chaim. That's what he told him. Again, it's a harsh story, but that's the concept behind it. I think we understand money can change everybody. The Chidah says that this puzzle hints to how somebody can stand up against his Yitzhahara. How? Beraglehem. What does that mean exactly? It says the Chidah, if one does the mitzvahs that are normally treated like garbage, the, those that are dosh ba'akev of the stuff that are by his feet, stepped upon, etc., then he's going to be able to defeat his Yitzhahara every single time, especially because the Yitzhahara is called a regal, right? Since so constantly miragul on a person, and telling over Lashon Hara to Shemayim, and you need all your strength and resources, 
or alacrity to be able to fight and stand up against the Jews of Yisrael, hence Bekerev Kol Yisrael, and that's the idea behind what it's referring to. Over here, also quotes another safer that giving money to Minichamim, standing them on their feet, right, will allow someone to defeat their own Yitzhar for good. Rashi says the last word is a pasuk Bekerev Kol Yisrael in the midst of all Yisrael, show that whenever any of them ran, the land, oh, you know, the people that were supposed to be swallowed up by the ground, the land swallowed them up wherever they were. I Meaning if Dustin Avirim would have run, and we don't know if it was them or their kids or whatever it was, the land swallowed them up there, pulled them under, and that was that. This is according to Rebbe Huda. Rebbe Nechemi on the Medrash says the Pesach says the land opened up its mouth singular and not mouths plural. So it wasn't many different openings all around. There should have been only one opening according to this. So instead, he says, the word Bekar means the land became a slope and made them fall down into the original hole wherever they were. They were rolled into the land's, land's mouth and swallowed up. Not anybody else, just the people were supposed to be swallowed up. Sivzakami points out that this Rashi is actually put before the other Rashi that we mentioned before, right, out of order. He says this may be because HaKadosh Baruch wanted to show B'nai saw all the different signs and wonders that they had experienced throughout the Midbar and how they took many of them for granted. These slopes and land spills were all over the place, right? Causing all Dustin of Yerim's relatives and his cronies to be swallowed up by the ground and be lost forever from everybody, even the big mouth of Gumbene saw. Yet no one else was carried along with them. The others were not swallowed up. Nothing bad happened. What a miraculous event that they saw with their very own eyes. And that's what the Torah more seems to say as well. The Orachayim HaKadosh, right? He says that even those things that were not with them when they were swallowed up were taken along with them. For example, if you borrowed a bowl from them or even a needle. The bowl and the needle was either swallowed up in its place or rolled to the place where they were gone, right? So that nothing they owned remained above ground. It was as if it never existed in the first place. The Ramban, wonders by Korach and his 250 men are not mentioned over here, who were consumed right by the fire and they weren't swallowed up by the ground when they tried to bring the Ketoris. Right, that's out of them. So what happened to them? Why aren't they here over here? Well, aside from the answer that we gave up above, there was nine Latorah number one, I found seven more answers to this question, okay? There's the Ramban, Rav Sternbach and the Nitziv, those nine Latorah number one, three more from the Tzela Darach, and one from Rashi and Tehillim. We'll see a bunch of others over here. So he says the following. He says, to bring Ketoris when you're not supposed to is a love from the Torah. That's what it is. Such a person is punished for many generations. We see from Uziah, the Davidic king who tried to do the exact same thing to bring a korban, the Ketoris, even though he wasn't supposed to, he was only a king, he was not a Kohen. Therefore, they're not counting the signs in the Midbar, since this punishment would continue for many generations in the future. This punishment will be there for everybody from that family, etc. That's one. Tamidas of Strumbuk says, Korach's intentions were to lead Klai Yisrael, not to start a fight. He didn't want to start a fight. But that's what happens. He was not a Balmach Glokas, even though at the moment he allowed his Ruach to control him and made an absolute horrible decision. He was wrong. He was punished horribly because of it and burned up, right, in such a way that it's absolutely whatever. But he had noble intentions. And for that reason, he's not mentioned over here in Parsha's Akev. Dustin and Avirim, however, were only in it for the fight. They wanted Machlokas. They were into a Machlokas, right, in Klausel. And they could do anything to be able to continue that Machlokas. Such people deserve an unbelievable punishment. And that's to be mentioned before B'nai Saul's examples what would happen when you're a terrible person. And that's why it's mentioned over here, Dustin Aviram, Arba Korach was not. Super interesting, because there was an opinion in Parshat Pinchas that Korach was swallowed up by the ground, as well as been burned. So either way, regardless, the Nitziv says the exact same answer. 250 people were L'Shem Shemayim. Perhaps Korach was as well. They might have
have been Lashem Shemayim. But those two people, Dawson and Avirim, were not Lashem Shemayim. They couldn't care less who HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose. The fact that they were swallowed up in the ground was a good thing to get rid of them from all of Klai Yisrael. The 250 men should be mourned. Their pans were able to be sanctified, to be used in the Mishkan from that point on, because they did a Lashem Shemayim. And therefore, they're completely different from Dawson and Avirim, who never had anything to do with Lashem Shemayim. That's answer number two. Answer number three. Aznayim Latorah says, this Pesach says, it was Bekerev Kol Yisrael in the midst of all B'nai Yisrael that everyone saw this. When Moshe Rabbeinu told the people a massive miracle was going to happen, everyone ran to go see what was going to happen to Dustin Avirim, leaving Korach and his 250 men by themselves outside the Olmoi. They all saw the land opening up, and they all saw them swallowing Dustin Avirim, but no one saw the 251 men burning up with the Ketoros. They didn't see that part. They only saw Dustin Avirim be swallowed up by the ground. Even if Korach was also swallowed up, which is mentioned in Parshish Pinchas, nonetheless, it wasn't public. It wasn't seen by witnesses. Nobody knew that. That's why the only people that are mentioned here are the people that were seen by the people, and that was only Dustin and Avirim and their families, right? Not the others. And that's what it means in Tilim Kovov, where it says, Vatiftach Eretz Vativ La Dosson. The land opened up and swallowed up Dosson. Vatichasal Adas Aviram. It doesn't even mention Bilam. Uh, sorry, Bilam. <laughs> Korach. Because Korach is not public. It was never done, never done publicly. And the Melo Roim says the exact same thing. Korach is not mentioned over here because he was swallowed, if, even if he was swallowed up by the ground, which is a Machlokas, obviously, again, as we said before, Kofiyot Aman Aleph in Sanhedrin and Parsh Pinchas, right? No one knew about it. No one knew about that. And no one was sure what was what happened to Korach in the first place. Moshe was trying to show the people that they saw miracles. He couldn't prove anything about Korach, right? He couldn't say, this is what happened to Korach, because we're not sure what happened to Korach. That's the idea. Tzedeladarach says something very similar to this in the fourth answer, but he also says Moshe left Korach out because he was family. He was embarrassed that this happened to another Levi. And that's the reason why he left it out. This is answer number four. He also says that Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to mention Dustin and Avirim because they were more brazen than everybody else. Obviously, he had his fights with them before and went out cursing even as they fell into Gehenim. They didn't even get back, get back even then. Even Korach wasn't that bad. Korach understood that he had done something wrong by the end. Yet another answer is that Korach fought against Aaron. This is answer number five, right? It would seem petty to bring up Korach if he was taking revenge on him after he died as if to say like, oh, see, Aaron was right. That's petty, right? So therefore, he left him out. He just mentioned Dustin Aviram, who technically only argued on Moshe Rabbeinu I say this is what it is. Chida, number six, quotes Rav Yaakov Pinto, so related to the Rav Pinto that we have along today, who says that since B'nai Korach survived, and the children that were listening to Moshe Rabbeinu at that point, they were alive somewhere, out of their honor, the honor of the B'nai Korach, Moshe Rabbeinu did not mention what happened to their grandfather Korach. Right? This is brought by the Maloa Romi as well. He says that when one gives Moshe, you got to be very careful not to embarrass the people that you're giving Moshe to, and that's great, right? I, I found this later on, this answer of the B'nai Korach being alive, and he didn't want to do it in front of them. In the time of the Korach, the Miyamlo is Seda Lederach, the Rashi gives this answer exactly in Tehillim Kofiud. I have no idea why Rav Yaakov Pinto, the Chidah, and the Melor Rum don't quote Rashi in Divri Ayamim. I assume they knew it, right? But it's very, very strange. But either way, but they all quote Rashi in Divri Ayamim that says the exact same, in, I'm sorry, in, in Tehillim Kofiud that says the exact same thing as the Bnei Korach. The honest truth is, I don't really understand this answer whatsoever because the Bnei Korach were around for Parshish Pinchas and obviously for Parshish Balak. Maybe this is because it's Moshe Rabbeinu's speech at the end of his life. It's 38 years later, 30 Nine years later, and that would be a little bit different. I just, I don't, I don't understand the answer so much. But either way, regardless, that's there. Interestingly, Rabinion says Asher Patsita has the letters Sin Resh Pei Saraf in the middle of them. That might be a hidden remez to Korach, who is both swallowed up and burned. Right, according to one opinion of the Gemara, as we mentioned, Kofiot, etc. Patsita is also the Gemara of 575, which is Asara, because the mouth of the ground is one of the ten things created out of Shabbos and that's why it's mentioned. We are Asher Patsita's and that's the idea behind it. 
technically, that's another answer. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six. That's our sixth answer right over here. The final answer we have is Chassam Sofer that's in Drushos, Perachelik Aleph, page 362, that it could be just the opposite of what we were saying above. Even though Dosan Abiram were swallowed by the earth, never to be heard from ever again, Moshe Rabbeinu brings them up constantly so that Bnei Israel will learn from them what not to do, and that would be a tikkun for their neshamas. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows this for Rashaim, Leval Yidach Mimenu Nidach, that nobody should be brought out, nobody should be ever let out. Even though they're Rashaim, they came from Kalah Yisrael, they deserve some sort of tikkun, and therefore they get this tikkun now. It could be that Dosan Abiram deserved this, but Korach does not. And that's why we don't mention over here. And I realize my steer over here that sometimes I'm mentioning Korach as being this unbelievably great person who did tshuva. In other places I'm saying that Korach is this terrible person who doesn't even deserve to do tshuva. Both are true. Uh, it takes a little bit of work. How? But both of them are true. And that's the end of Parsha Ekev, Tuf Shin Pei Gimel. Shkarech, everybody. Have a great Shabbat.